Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 1. This is the command, the statutes and ordinances the Lord your God has instructed me to teach you, so that you may follow them in the land you are about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands I'm giving you, your son and your grandson, and so that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Tonight's second reading is from Mark chapter 12 um, on page 933 of the Church Bibles if you have one of those. So it's Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? This is the most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself, is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God, and no one dared to question him any longer. So Jesus asked this question as he taught in the temple complex. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can the Messiah be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the front seats of synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher punishment. 
Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped large, sorry, dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put in more than all those giving in the temple treasury. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty, has put in everything she possessed, all she had to live on. G'day, guys. I think Troy might have forgotten something before, and that is, with Easter coming up, we like to invite everyone in a big circle around where we are here to come to church with us at Easter and hear about Jesus' death and resurrection. And we need literally 50 volunteers to help us deliver those leaflets to all the streets around. And the way you can sign up to help with that is on your feedback slip. You'll see the last box there says, help with Easter flyer letterbox drop. Uh, So we need as many people as we can get volunteering to go for a walk and deliver leaflets around the area. You get given a few streets and a pile of leaflets and uh, that's something everyone can do. And if you want encouragement uh, to why that's a really great thing to do, uh, we heard, I was away with the 9am congregation a couple of weeks ago and one of the ladies there got up and shared her testimony and uh, she came along to church, I think it was last Good Friday... It was Christmas, there you go, same deal, Christmas, Easter, whatever, you know, leaflets. Anyway, last Christmas, Christmas before last, came along because she got a leaflet in her letterbox down on Queen Victoria Street and uh, she then did Christianity Explained, has become a Christian and now has found salvation. So uh, if you need any encouragement that this is a great thing to do with a couple of hours of your time, uh, that should be it. But now let's pray and uh, let's look at this great part of scripture from Mark chapter 12. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that tonight uh, that I might preach your word faithfully and boldly, but more than that, we pray that you might be at work in every one of us here tonight through your word, you might soften our hearts so that we respond in faith and repentance to the preaching of your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to ask you a slightly strange question as we start, and uh, that is, why do you ask questions? I don't mean, why do you ask questions of me? I mean, why do you ask a question at all of anyone? If you think about it, it seems quite simple. Uh, You ask questions because you want to hear an answer. You want some information and you think the person can give you the information, so you ask them the question. But actually, when you start to think about it and, and look at our world a little bit more, you work out that actually people have all sorts of different motivations for asking questions. If you ever want to see that at its most sad level, watch our parliament in question time. And what happens there is members of the opposition get up and they ask questions of members of the government or members of the government get up and ask questions of members of the opposition and they do not want the answer to their question. The entire reason they ask the question is to embarrass. They know something. They know, oh, you've spent some money on something you shouldn't have. So they get up and say, would the honourable member for whatever,ville please explain to us why he spent the money on da 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 and and so forth. But you see the point there is they're not actually asking questions to get information, they're asking questions with another ulterior motive in mind. I find sometimes when I'm talking to people about Jesus, that's what happens with people's questions that they ask. 
I love it when people come to me with genuine questions. So, you know, like when I'm talking with someone and they're going through suffering or something in their life and they, they genuinely want to know, why does a good God allow suffering? You know, well, why does a good God allow this thing to happen to me? And, and when we look at the scriptures together, they're genuinely grappling with it and they want to know the answer. And in fact, knowing the answer to that will help them either come to trust in Jesus or strengthen in their trust in Jesus. But there's other times where people ask questions and they ask the question, why does a good God allow suffering? And so you say, well, let's look at the Bible together. And you start with the Bible and you can see they've stopped listening. And you say, well, why am I answering your question? Because then they go, yeah, but you've answered that. Well, what about evolution? And you say, oh, well, let's talk about evolution. Let's go back and look at Genesis. And they go, yeah, but what about the pygmies in deepest, darkest Africa? And they don't actually want an answer to any of the questions they're asking. They're just asking the questions to be annoying, really. They're asking the questions sort of to set up a smoke screen to sort of say, I don't want to get down and talk about anything deep. I'm just asking these questions to keep you at arm's length. It doesn't matter how many answers you give, there's always still a question coming. We, we shouldn't be surprised when people do that because it's exactly what they did to Jesus all through Mark's gospel. And we've seen it now for week after week after week as the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests come to Jesus with their questions and they're not asking for him to give them an answer. They're not interested in an answer every time they come and all they want to do is test him and trick him and trap him in his words. And you saw it at its sort of worst last week. Do you remember last week's passage where they had that question about the woman whose husband died and then she marries another husband and he dies and it goes through and she has seven husbands. They were not asking that out of pastoral concern. They were thinking this is a really common event in the life of our, our temple where all these women come to us and say, I've been widowed seven times. I really want to know the end. They were asking because they thought this might be a way to trap Jesus in his words, to test him, which makes tonight's passage so wonderful and actually quite a special moment because this is the first time in this part of Mark's gospel where one of the scribes, these enemies of Jesus, comes to Jesus with a real heartfelt question that he actually wants to know the answer to. So open up Mark chapter 12 and look at verse 28 with me. It says, One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Now that is a great question because the scribes, the Pharisees, they had gone through the whole Old Testament Whatever their problems, it wasn't that they didn't know the Old Testament. They knew it very, very well and they'd gone through the whole thing and they had worked out that there were 613 different commandments in God's law. So they had, you can do this this week, in fact an assignment for you this week is to read Genesis to Deuteronomy and, and write them all out for me. 613 commandments. If anyone brings me all 613 commandments of God's law, they win a small prize next week. There you go, just a little bit of fun for you. As you uni, you're not doing anything else, you know. So, but anyway, so there were all these laws, 630 of them, from don't work on the Sabbath to how to wash mold off the bricks of your house, from don't kill to don't eat pork. You know, all of these laws, 630. So, of course, they argued amongst themselves: Are all of these laws as important as every other one? Is it as important what we eat as not killing someone? And are any of the laws greater 
than the other laws and which law is the greatest of all? And so he brings his question to Jesus and then Jesus gives him an answer. Look at verse 29. This is the most important, Jesus answered. And then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, our first reading from tonight. Listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. He says, that's the most important commandment right there. Love God with everything. That's the most important thing. Now, that would not have been controversial. Every Jew listening would have said, Amen, as Jesus said that. In fact, that was the verse, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, that was the verse they recited every morning before they did anything else. They said that verse out aloud, a good Jew, before they did anything else. They knew it off by heart. But what Jesus then does is he adds a second commandment. And they wouldn't have done this. So Leviticus 19.18, he quotes, and he says, The second is, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Jesus is saying, love is the greatest command. First, love for God, and then secondly, love for other people. And I think he puts the two together because he wants them and us to see that you cannot have one of those without the other. That's why he draws the two together. He's saying you cannot claim to love God if you then don't love other people. If you say, oh, look, I'm very religious and all my focus is up there on God and then you ignore your friend, your neighbour, when they are in need, Jesus would say, well, you don't love God at all. You can't can't claim to love God and not love your neighbour. And more than that, it is our love for God that drives us to love other people and shows us how to love other people. And his point here is those two commandments... On those hang everything else. They are the lens through which you read everything else of God's commandments to his people. Love is the basis of all godliness. Do you want to know what you should do in any situation where the question to ask is, what is the loving thing to do? Now we've been reading in Mark's gospel about these Pharisees, haven't we, around Jesus' time. And we would say, how much did they need to hear that message? How much did they need to hear that? You you know how we've seen them and how they were so intent on keeping like law number 426 or law number 219 that sometimes they would say, I've got to keep that law so I can't afford to love you. So they would say, you might be starving, but it's the Sabbath. I can't work on the Sabbath, so you'll have to keep starving. I'm not going to give you anything to eat. That's the sort of thing they would do. They would hold one law against the other. But Jesus says, no, you can't do that because love is the greatest commandment. If another command of God is stopping you from loving someone, then you mustn't be understanding the other commandment rightly. You read everything through this lens of love for God and love for your neighbour. It's funny though, if that was the problem for the Pharisees, people today have a different problem. Modern people love this idea that it's all about love. And that's why this is one of the most misquoted and abused parts of the Bible. You see, the world today loves quoting it at Christians. Whenever Christians dare say, God says you should live this way, 
the non-Christian world and often Christians themselves quote back and say oh Jesus wouldn't have said that he would have just said to love me not to tell me I'm wrong not to tell me how to live not to change my life don't don't you tell me what I can do with my body don't you tell me who I can marry Jesus said you should just love me so get on with it and sadly the idea of love has become a vacuous and empty sort of idea in our modern world because to love someone for modern Australia at least means to let me do what I want and anyone who has ever had a child or ever been a child of a parent knows that that is not love a parent does not love their child by letting them do what they want as much as we wish that was the case A loving parent says, no, I set boundaries. Sometimes I tell you, you can't do what you want because it's bad for you. Sometimes I set limits on you. Sometimes I even rebuke you and challenge you. You see, this issue has come about, this empty sort of love in the modern world has come about because we have separated love for the other person from love for God. You see, true love is love for God first. That is what comes first. So true love says, what would God want me to do? Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength means loving to obey him. It means seeking to serve him. It means living our lives for him. And then in that context, that tells us how to love our neighbour. Because loving our neighbour means giving up our rights to do what is best for them. Not always what they want, but always what is best for them. So love means sometimes, yes, we will encourage people and affirm people. In fact, a lot of the time. But sometimes loving someone means we will challenge them and rebuke them. And surely loving people means we will always tell them about God's coming judgment and the salvation they can find in Jesus. Love is everything. On that commandment hangs all the laws. But it is not a vacuous love that is everything. It's not our modern world's idea of love that is everything. It is a self-sacrificial, powerful, God-directed love that is everything. But what's wonderful here is the man's response. Look at verse 32. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. If you've been reading through Mark's gospel, that is a shocking verse. For one of the scribes of the Pharisees to say to Jesus, you are right. That hasn't happened before. He says, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Do you see why that response is so wonderful? At last, one of these religious people gets it. He gets what everyone else hasn't got. He gets what Jesus has been saying to them for days on end. God is not interested in hypocritical religion. He wants hearts and minds that love him in everything. And he wants people who then love other people because they know the love of God. And what good are all their religious duties, their sacrifices and their offerings, if they don't love God and love their neighbour? The Apostle Paul, in what I call the wedding chapter, you know 1 Corinthians 13? It's actually got nothing to do with marriage, it's all about the church. But anyway, people love having it at their wedding because it's all about love. 
But in that chapter, the Apostle Paul sort of applies this to us as Christians. And he says to us, don't you dare tell me you've got faith. He wanted you to hear it. Don't you dare tell me you've got faith. What's going on? I'm getting a bit excited. Don't you dare tell me you've got faith if you then don't love other people. Don't you come and sing hymns here at church if you then don't use your mouth to express love to other people. Don't you dare come and lead the prayers here at church if you do not have love for other people. You can be at church every week, you can be a world-renowned preacher, but if you don't love people, then it's all for nothing. You can give everything you've got to the work of the gospel, but if you don't love people, it's nothing. Well, back to our passage. You can tell that Jesus is moved by this man's answer. Look at verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's a funny comment, isn't it? You are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not in the kingdom, but you're not far away. His point is you're on the right track. Unlike all these other people who think God is going to let them into heaven into his kingdom because you've got the temple or you make sacrifices or whatever it is you think you do you get what God really wants but you're not there yet because you do not enter the kingdom of God on the basis of your understanding of the law if you've heard everything I said in the first part of the sermon please make sure you hear this You do not enter the kingdom of God on the basis of how well you understand what God wants. You don't enter enter the kingdom of God on even on the basis of how well you go at loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and how well you go at loving your neighbour as yourself. Because really, who can say that they love God with everything? And who can say that they love their neighbour as themselves? No one can. Now you enter the kingdom of God, how? By coming and believing in the King, Jesus, who offers us forgiveness for all our sin and all our hypocrisy and all our failure to love God and love our neighbour. That's how you enter the kingdom, by coming to trust in Jesus in repentance and faith. This man was close, but he wasn't there yet. We never hear anything else about this man. We don't know what happened to him, but you sort of hope given how close he was, that after Jesus died for his sins and rose again, maybe at Pentecost when Peter preached, you hope that at that time he said, I recognise you, Jesus, for who you are and put his faith in him and found salvation. You just hope it, don't you? Because many of the Pharisees became Christians after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, it says that at that point, if you look again there, no one dared ask Jesus any questions after that. I love that. It's like they thought, oh, we've had enough. They were battered and bruised. They they couldn't handle it. But the funny thing is that didn't stop Jesus now asking them a question. And why it's really funny is that Jesus asked them quite an annoying question back. Uh, It's really Jesus asking them a tester. Jesus sort of says to them, well, I'm going to give you a conundrum. You reckon you know your Old Testaments pretty well. I'm going to give you a test. And it's a question about the Messiah. This is verses 35 to 37. Come there with me. See, all of the Jews were waiting for God's Messiah to come, the Saviour, the King. And the one thing they agreed on was that he would be descended from King David. 
that when he came, he would be King David's great, 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 however many generations, grandson. And that would be the king. But Jesus says in that psalm we read before, Psalm 110, he says, hang on, that was David talking. And at that time, while David was still alive, he calls the Messiah his Lord and talks to him. What's going on there? How could the Messiah have been alive when David was alive? And how could David talk to him in heaven, even though you're saying the Messiah has to be a descendant of King David? So it's like Jesus is saying to them, you guys think you know your Bibles. Well, how do you answer that one? Now, we know the answer. You might be looking at me at this point going, I don't know. What are you, what are you talking about? I've got no idea what the answer is. But you do know the answer. You just don't know it yet. We know the answer because we know the answer is that Jesus is both God and man. That's the answer. We know that the story of Jesus, the son of God, didn't start when he was born in a stable in Bethlehem. We know that Jesus, well, God the son, has always been. There has always been God the father, God the son and God the spirit. But the miracle at the time of Jesus is that God the Son was willing to become a human being. So we know that as a man, he is descended from David. That's why it's so important that he was born of Joseph and Mary. But we know that he is more than that. He is the Lord. He is God the Son who has existed forever with his Father. See, Jesus isn't just giving them a riddle to solve to be a a pain in the neck. He's getting them ready to understand that most wonderful truth that if you are a Christian, you understand. The truth that will get proclaimed to the world after his resurrection, that Jesus is both the Messiah and God. He is both Messiah and Lord, both Saviour and King and the Lord of all. But at this point, they can't answer it. And I love verse 37, look at verse 37. It just basically says the crowds are loving it. What it means is the crowds just love the fact that the Pharisees can't answer any of Jesus' questions. These self-righteous Pharisees and priests can't do anything about it, which leads us into the next section. So come with me. We've got four little episodes. We're now looking at these last two very quickly, starting at verse 38. What you've got here is a summary of what Jesus taught over this week in the temple. It's not everything he taught, otherwise why did he spend a week there? Uh, But if they wrote it all down, it'd go for pages. So it's like they're saying, here's one of the things Jesus taught in the temple. And what it is, is a warning. Look at verse 38. He also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes. Now the scribes, we've just met one of them, but we've met them all through the book of Mark. They were the leaders of the Pharisees. They were the people who interpreted the Old Testament. But we know they're the bad guys. You've read ever since Sunday school, you've known the Pharisees were bad guys. But they thought they were the good guys. They prided themselves on being the most religious people. So everyone looked up to them. They said, look at how wonderful they are. They're righteous. They're holy. If anyone was right with God, it was these guys. But Jesus says, beware of them. And what's his issue with them? Well, let's look. He says, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the front seats in the synagogues, and the places of honour at banquets. What was the problem he had with them? These men were putting on a show of religion. They were being righteous, not out of love for God, but because they wanted everyone to bow down to them and say how wonderful they were. 
They didn't want to be righteous out of love for God. They wanted to be righteous so they could get the important seat at the front of church. They wanted the place of honour. Worse than that, look at verse 40. He said, they devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. Seems that some of them took advantage of vulnerable people like widows and took money off them. You can't help but think, I can't anyway, of the American televangelists when he warns against this. You know those guys who have their TV shows and they say to the single mother or or to the widow, if you just give one last dollar, you know, God will bless you as they fly around in their Learjets and wear their shiny suits. That's the type of people he's warning against here. And these people, they would pray with what I call one eye open. You know when you go to a prayer meeting and sometimes you feel like someone's praying because they want you to see them and hear them praying rather than to hear God, speak to God? And so they're sort of looking and say, are people impressed? As I quote 1 Kings 7 in my prayers, you know, or whatever it is. And they're praying, but they're not really interested in talking to God. They're just saying, is everyone spotting me? Is everyone going to affirm me after and say, gee, you're a wonderful prayer. I wish I could pray like you. You're so religious. Well, Jesus says to those people, people might give you a special seat. People might bow down to you when you walk into church. But God has a very special seat for you. It's in hell. You will face a judgment worse than other people. Look at verse 40. He said, these will receive harsher punishment. Jesus hated religious hypocrisy more than he hated anything else. He hated people who put on a show of being religious when in their hearts was nothing. Not all the scribes and the Pharisees were like this. Remember, we just met that guy who came with a genuine concern and question. Jesus isn't tarring everyone with the same brush, but many of them were, and Jesus hated it. Jesus hated people who put on a show of religion, but then did not love other people. Who liked other people telling them how godly they were, when in their heart it was all about them. And do you know the saddest thing is, that this sort of hypocrisy carried over from the Old Testament people of God into the New Testament people of God, the church. And you see it. You see it with the way people love religious pomp and ceremony. You see it with the way many bishops and ministers love to dress in the fine clothes and wear the special hats and have people come and bow down before them and kiss the ring on their finger. Jesus hated that. We've got to be careful not to judge other people. It's not just the the robes and the cathedrals. These days there are many pastors who love fine suits and who love people inviting them out to the fancy restaurants and love having their mega churches where people give them an income more than the people who are giving the money. I'm blessed in that way. A fine suit looks terrible on me. I can't even get into it, but you know. Jesus hates hypocritical religion. But don't just look at others. Don't just say, yeah, we better keep Phil honest. Don't let him wear those fancy suits. No, no, no. Look at ourselves. The Sunday Christian who comes to church and acts all pious and acts all holy, but then lives for themselves the rest of the time. The person who reads the Bible at the front here at church but then goes home and the same tongue they use to read the Bible abuses other people. 
the, the kids' church leader who teaches the word of God on a Sunday morning but is out getting drunk on a Saturday night. Jesus hates religious hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is awful, isn't it? And to some extent, every person here, including this one, needs to repent of it, don't we? Because we all are in this danger of caring more about putting on a show for other people than we are about loving God with all our heart and loving our neighbour as ourselves. But if Jesus warns us against hypocritical religion, what does he want? Well, he wants just a genuine love for him that flows into a genuine love for other people. He wants people who, because they know him and his forgiveness, love. Which leads us to what happens next, our last short little story. Come with me, verse 41. Sitting across from the temple treasury... He watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. According to Jewish records we've got at the time, against one wall of the temple, they had these 13 big trumpet-shaped sort of brass things that people could come in in front of everyone, put their money in. It makes our little giving box at the back look a little bit sad, really. But I keep talking to the parish council about getting one of these big brass ones, but they don't want to do it. But anyway... But Jesus, you imagine him, he's there with his disciples sort of sitting against the opposite wall as all these people come and put their thousands of dollars in the offertory because the Jews, whatever they were, they were generous. They knew the law said you had to tithe and so they gave 10% of whatever they had to the work of the temple, to the priests. But then, after they'd seen all these rich people, they saw this poor widow. Look at verse 42. And a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. The coins they're talking about were literally tiny. They were worth one-eighth of a cent. That's what this woman was dropping in, two tiny coins. Even allowing for inflation, she couldn't have bought a coffee with what she put in. It was that little. She gave next to nothing. Her name was not going up on the wall as a platinum sponsor. They weren't going to name the next wing of the temple after her. But Jesus watched her put her quarter of a cent in. And he said, look at verse 43. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put in more than all those giving to the temple treasury. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she possessed, all she had to live on. I think, besides the cross, this is one of the most powerful stories in the New Testament. Most powerful in terms of conviction, at least, I think. And at this point, I don't think Jesus is trying to belittle the wealthy people who'd come and put their money in the the brass boxes. He's just saying, you might think they are the generous ones. You might think they're going to have a great reward. But all I'm telling you is her gift is far more wonderful and far more generous. And it's true, isn't it? Now, the obvious first implication of this little story is for our giving and for our generosity towards the work of the gospel, isn't it? And that's where this woman is always used. Pastors love this passage. The American televangelists love this passage. This woman is used as an example of self-sacrificial giving. And that's true. That's a fine application. It's funny though, 
I sometimes hear this story used, amazingly, to justify giving a small amount. There was a really funny article in the newspaper last week, I don't know if other people saw it, uh, where high-income earners were asked to assess whether they considered themselves to be high-income earners or middle-income earners or low-income earners. So the only people they surveyed in this study earned at least $200,000 a year. So they're in the top 10% of earners in Australia. But two-thirds of them said, no, 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 I'm a battler. I'm working class. And you've got to ask, well, who are the rich people then? If these people are not the rich people. But that's what we do sometimes. We say, yeah, I'm like the widow. I can only give a little amount. Sometimes I hear Christians quote this little story as a support for their lack of generosity. They try to say, I'm like the widow, so don't judge me for giving my tiny amount. It's all I can afford at this time. Every little bit counts. I mean, don't you know, Jesus accepted even the two little coins of the widow. I think they might have missed the last part of verse 44 there. Look at it. She put in everything she possessed, all she had to live on. And that is the key with respect to giving. Here the point is more that generosity is about proportion rather than amount. That's the point he's making. Generosity is not so much about how much a person gives as how much I keep. That's the guide of how generous a person has been. So for one person, a tithe, 10% of their income, is incredibly generous and puts them in a situation where they say, I don't know how I'm going to pay for my meals this week. But for another person, 20% is stingy. See, for a household who God has blessed with wealth, and where they own their own home and they have two people on high incomes, then frankly, $1,000 a month may not be very generous at all. It might be quite stingy. But for another person supporting a family on minimum wage, then $50 a week actually puts them in a situation where they say, I don't know where I'm going to pay my rent. You see, they might actually be like the widow in this story. The point of this is, work out your giving carefully and prayerfully and be generous according to how God has blessed you. That's the point. But even so, if we left it there, I think we'd actually be missing the main point of this little story. I don't think this story is meant to be a guide for generous giving. Jesus didn't have this conversation with his disciples so pastors like me could get up and say how much you should give. It's here to provide a comparison with the false religion of the Pharisees. Jesus wants you to say, who am I going to be? Am I going to be like the Pharisees, like the scribes, who pretend to be all righteous and religious, but in my heart I'm unchanged? Or am I going to be like the widow? You see, here is one of those widows who they abused the generosity of. Only a couple of verses ago he said they abused the generosity of widows. Well, here is one of those widows showing us what a real follower of Jesus looks like. She's here to show us what it means to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. See, Jesus is pointing her out to his disciples and to us if we have eyes to see 
to say, that's what real godliness looks like. The two coins is not the point. The point is she was giving God her whole life and trusting him to provide for her. That's the point. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. That is the call that Jesus makes on every person. It's a call to give everything over to him and trust him totally. So let's be like the widow, not the scribes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that you are not interested in false displays of religion or in hypocrisy, but instead you are interested in a person's heart and you want people who love you with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind and all their strength and then love their neighbour as themselves. But Father, we know that we fall so far short of that. And so we thank you that we don't earn our way into your kingdom, but instead we enter it by coming to Jesus and finding the forgiveness and the salvation he offers. But Father, in the light of that, and as people who know your grace and forgiveness, help us not to be religious hypocrites. Help us not to put on a show of piety. Instead, help us to be people who truly seek to love you and love one another. And we pray that we might be like that widow, trusting in you that you will provide for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.